and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Folklore Podcast, which is slightly different to our normal content. Although not producing new episodes between Christmas and next year, I wanted to make sure that you still had episodes to listen to, which would hopefully be of interest in a broader folklore sense. These episodes consist of talks from my archive which have been recorded at various events which I've been to. Just last month, both Tracy and myself were lucky enough to be asked to give talks at a new event dedicated to gothic horror, both on film and in history. Rounding off the two-day event was a screening of the classic Hammer Films production of The Hound of the Baskervilles, a Sherlock Holmes story which is obviously rich in folklore themes. Prior to this, I had already given a talk on black dog folklore, and following me was the talk that you are now about to hear. This talk is a broad discussion of the story development of The Hound, as well as the various film adaptations which have been made. This is undertaken as a discussion between two very well-respected presenters, Stephen Volk and Jonathan Rigby. Stephen is a screenwriter who is probably best known for writing the controversial BBC drama Ghostwatch, but whose career is far wider-reaching, including the screenplay for Ken Russell's film Gothic, also very much in the genre of the event. Jonathan Rigby is an actor and film historian who has a phenomenally in-depth knowledge of the Hammer Studios' output, and whose books include the authorised screen history of Christopher Lee and both English and American Gothic. Here's what they had to say on the subject of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Nice to see you. Turning out on a, on a, a Indeed. I was going to say bleak. It's not a very bleak evening, is it? But we'll make it bleak by, by, by dint of creating <laughs> sufficient atmosphere for you to watch Hound of the Basketballs, which I'm looking forward to. I haven't seen it for many years. You have, because you recorded oh. the commentary for it, didn't you? Uh, yes, well, that was a few years ago. Yeah. So uh, am I going to be Sherlock Holmes and you, Dr. Watson, or should we Well, I was, act- I was actually saying to you, which I, I hadn't <laughs> thought of the connection, but I actually starred as Dr. Watson in a film that was made on Super 8 when I was about 15. Um, <laughs> and I did it, if I recall, in a very Oliver Hardy fashion. Okay. Um, <coughs> so I, I, I think you should be Sherlock. Anyway. All right. All right. <laughs> um, <coughs> I thought I'd start with a, quite a good quote that I, that I found. <coughs> P.D. James called Hound of the Baskervilles this atavistic study of violence and evil in the mists of Dartmoor which I thought summed up the whole prospect of what we're going to be watching and enjoying tonight. But I thought we might start off by, if I could uh, ask Jonathan and uh, uh, tell you my own experience, first of all, which is, which is how, we, how, how we first um, came across the Hound of the Basketballs. And in my case, it was when I was about six or seven, I think, staying at my cousin's house. And um, with great anticipation, we listened to a version on the radio. Um, and we were absolutely terrified by it. But what I remember from it is my uncle explaining, because we were terrified by it, how the howling, which is very effective on the radio because you can't see anything. Um, so our, our childish imaginations ran riot. Um, he, he sat us down and explained that it wasn't actually a dog, it was a man in spectacles in the, in the special effects booth at the BBC, uh, and we should you know, keep that firmly in our minds. So in one, in one stroke I was, I was inculcated into the language of terror and also the complete falsification of the media 
you know, which I think has dogged me, if I can use that word, to the Don't present you. day. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first experience of it? Now, the Baskervilles, I'm not sure. I know I took out a copy of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes from the school library at a very early age. Um, but I suspect my first real exposure to the story was the film we're going to see this evening. But I've always had a problem with um, vicious dogs. Uh, when, <laughs> when I was about 10, I was pursued by... I thought you were going to say bitches for a minute, but anyway. <laughs> when, I, when I was about 10, I was pursued by something that was a bit like... Actually, we anticipated them. A bit like those uh, dogs that attacked David Warner and Gregory Peck in The Omen. And I remember it nipping at my uh, Wellington boots as I fled before it. And uh, many years later, I was asked to write for a long defunct magazine called Shivers, a piece about devil dogs in films, and there are no shortage of examples. And um, there were actually a couple of letters of complaint from dog lovers um, at my obvious bias against the canine species. <laughs> um, I'd write it differently now. <laughs> so there you go. One has to write everything differently now. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> um, so can we start by talking about Doyle's Hound and uh, the writing of that story? Yeah. Um, uh, I'll, I'll flounder my way through the facts. You can interject. I'll make interject. them more interesting. I think that's the plan for the evening. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Sherlock Holmes died in The Final Problem, which was published December 1893. took two years to write, two years for Doyle to get round to putting it onto paper. Uh, and the result of that was people wore black armbands. There was kind of, you know, a real feeling of national grief uh, and the loss of the great detective. But basically, Doyle felt there were better things he could spend his time on. And I was thinking of, actually, um, the, today. Um, there's another link in to Dartmoor in one other of Doyle's books, and that's The Adventures of Brigadier Gerard. Do you remember? Yes. Where he is imprisoned on Dartmoor Prison. And they're kind of comical stories, aren't they, about this Napoleonic officer who is a bumbling kind of character, yeah. but he has a heart of gold, is the, yeah. is the gag. And you remember, he escapes from Dartmoor, and he uh, tries to, you know, he tries to get through the, 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 across the moor, that kind of thing, and uh, the entire story takes place, and then he ends up back at the front door of Dartmoor Prison. Do you remember? That's the gag at the end of the story, which is exactly the same as the pilot episode of Porridge. <laughs> so, some weird connections there, but definitely a connection between Dartmoor and Dartmoor. There was another Sherlock Holmes story, wasn't there? Silver Blaze, the one about racing. Oh, that was that Dart, was it? Dartmoor. I know. Oh. Ah, I see. Oh. Well, the funny thing is, you know, um, he kills, he feels compelled to kill Sherlock Holmes off because he ought to be devoting himself to higher things, namely the historical novels that nobody now reads. Um, and yet, when he did that in 1893, Sherlock Holmes had only been around for six years. The first one came out in 1887, which just shows what a staggering impact those stories made, that after only six years of Sherlock Holmes, the nation went into mourning. <laughs> when he did this terrible thing of killing Sherlock Holmes off at the Reichenbach Falls. And then it was seven years and three months later, it says here, uh, and the Royal Lynx Hotel in Cromer, yeah. March 1901, 
that the situation was that he was under a lot of strain, he was quite depressed, his wife was ill, there was an affair going on with another woman in Doyle's life apparently at that time. Um, and he met a man called Bertram Fletcher Robinson, who was a reporter, a journalist, war correspondent. And Fletcher Robinson told Arthur Doyle of the legend of a black dog. Perhaps it was relating, relating back to what Mark was talking about in the, in the previous talk. It might have been about Black Shuck of Norfolk, according to someone called Max Pemberton. Or it could have been about fire-breathing wished hounds from Bering Gould's A Book of Devon. It could have been a number of things. But basically it set Doyle's imagination on fire, or drew him like a magnet, someone else expressed well, it. Well, he immediately wrote to his mother saying, I'm going to write a real creeper. That's right. That's the exact phrase. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that this um, story, so rooted in the West Country, actually originated in East Anglia when he was effectively having and, a rest cure. And the interesting Crow. thing about the letter, uh, picking up on something that Mark said earlier on about the name Baskerville, mm. is that when he wrote to his mother, I believe, and it's quite possible I'll get the facts wrong, so don't pick me up on it too much, but I think he used the word Baskerville in that letter to his mother long before his trip to Devon. Yes. So the story about the Baskerville uh, uh, groom, groom yeah. um, that, that was part of um, Fletcher Robinson collection might not be chronologically accurate. It might be that he read about the Vaughan um, dog yes. legend, which is connected to the Baskerville family before he went to Devon to research yes. the story. And that's rooted in Wales, that one, isn't it? Her that's just, right. Yeah, just rich. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Mark can confirm. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So that's quite interesting. There's a lot of debate. I think Mark would agree. Still going on about chicken and egg and what came first yes. and that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so yes, he wrote to his mother. This is going to be a real creeper. But interestingly, um, I don't know whether there's evidence that he thought it was going to be a horror story. Did he always think it was going to be a detective story that would turn out to be flesh and blood, or did he consider it was a supernatural story? Do we? I don't know if we know that. I think we surmise that once he hits upon this amazing gothic <laughs> archetype to use, a, a hound from hell, as it were, he felt I need some uh, suitably powerful antagonist mm. to put up against it. And why should I invent one? Because I've got Sherlock Holmes. And uh, this is the moment to bring him back. But of course, he, uh, Doyle did write some amazing and some of my favourite supernatural stories, mm. uh, which we can get onto later. That's why I, I, I posited that question. Um, yeah. So, a few weeks later, he went to Park Hill House, Newton Abbott in Devon, home of Fletcher Robinson's family. Yeah. Uh, as I say, the coachman and groom at Park, uh, Park Hill was called Henry or Harry Baskerville, who'd worked for Bertram's father. And um, he says... Arthur Granadoy stayed for eight nights and he drove both of them, both Arthur and Bertie, around the moors uh, and later, later claimed that Bertie wrote chunks of The Hound of Baskerville. Um, so you, some people have said that both Baskerville and Bertie felt written out of history. That's one version. Um, and the 88-year-old Baskerville story was used by Hammer in the publicity for their film and was quoted as saying, I often saw... Doyle and Bertie writing together, which seems like a bit of a damning phrase, but Adrian Conan Doyle countered that in the strongest possible terms <laughs> by saying Robinson played no role whatsoever in writing Arthur Conan Doyle's Hound of the Basketball. 
In fact, he refused to offer, he refused Doyle's offer to collaborate. And he had the evidence in the Conan Doyle archive that Fletcher Robinson had refused the opportunity to collaborate. So it's still a controversy about, about who, how much influence Fletcher Robinson had. But he was paid. Uh, and there's a letter that says what proportion he was paid. He was paid three to one. So in other words, as it says in one letter, so let me get this straight. Doyle gets six shillings and you get two, somebody said to him. And he said, correct. Um, I think what's really interesting and maybe revealing is the changing dedication in Hound. Yes. And it begins, to, it begins along the lines, thank you to Fletcher Robinson who gave me this idea and helped me plot it out and was a great inspiration, thank you very much. And then gradually over the years, especially after Fletcher Robinson's death, becomes thanks to Fletcher Robinson who helped me a lot but didn't write any of it. <laughs> well, apparently well, that's because when, um, when The Hound of the Baskervilles was first serialised, uh, a couple of American newspapers uh, latched onto the Fletcher Robinson. They made a big thing. story of out and, of it, really, and, and, and it must have become an irritation. Yeah, they maintained that Sherlock Holmes was, seemed like an entirely different character in this story to how he'd been before. And so they felt it must be a Fletcher Robinson story, and I think Conan Doyle was aware of that, and so he modified the dedication. It still reads quite graciously. It says, who helped me with the, some of the plot and uh, a great deal of the local colour, effectively, he was saying, wasn't he? Yeah, was and that um, was embellishing for effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. yeah, I think it's, it's actually it's as dedications go. It's um, it's quite gracious, I yeah, think. But yeah. then who who knows? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I doubt whether we we'll ever get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I indeed, to the bottom of where Baskerville actually came from, because there's a number of uh, there's a there's uh, uh, there's a Baskerville at Clyro Court near Hay on Wye. Uh, a branch of the Baskervilles. There's a wolf's head in its arm, uh, on its coat of arms. Coat of arms. Um, <clears throat> but the legend is more of an echo of uh, Llewellyn and the legend of Galert, Llewellyn's dog. Um, um, but they say, or rather somebody who owns there, who might want to publicise the place, said that Arthur Conan Doyle asked if they could lose the, use the name and they said yes you can use it on condition you relocate everything to Dartmoor which sounds a little bit unlikely to me but anyway uh, <coughs> yes. uh, I think this thing about the, him mentioning Baskerville in a letter before he went to Devon is, yes. is an interesting thing yeah. so in other words the groom Harry Baskerville really had nothing to do with it yeah. <laughs> but that's a big coincidence, big coincidence though isn't it but Anyway, um, and th I found another Baskerville that I found really interesting, but I think this is a... Jonathan knows about this, but I think it's a, it's a cul-de-sac, but I find it interesting. Uh, this summer we went to, um, me and my wife, for my birthday actually, this is the kind of treat I have for my birthday, we went to the Hellfire Caves, ah, yeah. <laughs> the home of the Hellfire Club, and when we were wandering around that, there was a list of the members, I think, in, in the leaflet that came with it. And lo and behold, there was a Baskerville listed as a member of the Hellfire Club. Ah. And, uh, okay, that might not be the derivation of Baskerville. I find it a kind of nice bit of synchronicity because of the flavour of Sir Hugo's uh, this prologue. This particular film. Yes. This particular, the, the tone of the beginning of the Hammer film is very yeah. Hellfire Club, as a number of people have noticed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they actually shifted it forward from 
the 17th century yeah. to later in the 18th, so they could get that hammer feel, yeah. that sort of feel of uh, corrupt and monstrous doigt de seigneur <laughs> yes. and uh, all the rest of it. And I'll mention this now before we get on to it, but uh, the woman who plays the female lead in Hammer's film, Marla Landi, who'd been, uh, who was Italian and had been a model, is a very um, effective actress in this film, she subsequently married Sir Francis Dashwood. Uh, so there's a specific Hellfire Club thing there, and she still oh, lives fantastic. to this day on the Dashwood estate in West Wickham. Oh my gosh, that's How about, that's too much to be coincidence, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Conan Doyle and uh, Fletcher Robinson explored Dartmoor, and they used places in the story. Newton Abbott became Coombe Tracy, I think it's safe to say. Um, in, in, in the Frailing book, it says that He Tree House which I don't know, with its long drive, was the inspiration for Baskerville Hall. <coughs> which was just, uh, and um, I'm not sure whether this, this quote was Conan Doyle's, but a great place, very sad and, and wild, dotted with the dwellings of prehistoric man, strange monoliths, and Hudson graves. I think that's how Doyle described it as he was writing it. And it was almost like he was writing it as he was researching it, you know, it was really soaking up the atmosphere. But they went on this famous 14-mile um, round trip over the moor, um, you know, the mighty bog of Fox Tor Mire, became Grimpen Mire, and uh, the stone huts of Grimm's Pond, I think, Grimm's Pound, became uh, the hiding place of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and I think it's worth just as a, as a footnote saying a bit about Richard Cable. Yes. Um, who I think certainly has, a, has his fla uh, the flavour of his life in this. Um, he was known as uh, um, evil woman baiting, which is a phrase that I haven't used in a long time. Um, <laughs> that was his reputation anyway, of Buckfast Lee and uh, Richard Cable. Um, he died in 1677, as you say, much earlier than the, the Hammer prologue. Um, and it was said that when he died, black dogs breathing fire raced over Dartmoor according to Baring Gould. Um, so uh, someone said that the Hound of the Basketballs is a kind of telescoped version of that, of that uh, pack uh, into one being. But I would, I, would, I would also suggest that, you know, Doyle was a big fan of Poe and the old cursed family, big house, bleak countryside, the throwback, Kind of degeneracy, yeah. de effectively, with yeah. those bogs. It's very uh, has a big echo of the House of Usher, which I'm sure yeah. was, you know, was maybe not intentional, but I think, you know, the influence of Poe on on the kind of Gothic literature, supernatural, and um, the kind of literature that Doyle obviously loved um, was um, was was clear. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about <laughs> the detective and the supernatural. Yeah. Um, because I think in Doyle himself there was a clash between rationality and, and belief. Um, I think he wrote wonderful horror stories. I mean, one of my favourites is called Playing with Fire. Do you know that? Yeah. Which was dramatised on the BBC, I think, in the 60s. In the 60s. Uh, which really made a big mark on me. If, if, for those who don't know it, it's, um, it's effectively a, a seance in which the people holding the seance, create something imaginary, stroke, impossible, which is a unicorn, isn't it? Yes, isn't that the idea? Yeah, yeah. And one of the people around the table is an artist who, yeah. who depicts it, and they bring it, they literally create it in the room. Yeah. Um, 
And as a lot of you know um, already, Doyle was uh, a leading spiritualist later in, later in his life. Certainly in the, in the 1920s, he toured America as a, as a great advocate for spiritualism, and he investigated, or rather um, complied with the Cottingley Fairies, as Mark mentioned earlier, and he wrote The Land of Mist, which was, a, was, was really a kind of tub-thumping yarn um, in which uh, Professor Challenger be basically became a, a spiritualist. Um, but interestingly, in terms of the time he was writing this, uh, Doyle joined the Society for Psychical Research in November 1893, which was a month before he killed Sherlock Holmes. So it's kind of like um, the rational side and the belief side of him were having a bit of a tussle at that time. That's right. Uh, and he maybe was losing... Um, his fondness for rationalism, or uh, you know, dark side, light side of him, uh, you know, one side was winning out. Um, and certainly, at the time he was writing *The Hound*, he was attending séances. Uh, as I say, post World War One, um, he was not only a convert but virtually a kind of evangelist for the cause, really, and came into a great clash with Houdini when he was in America because Houdini was famous for séance bashing and yeah. debunking generally. <laughs> Uh, even though they were, they started out as friends. Um, I found there was a connection in my mind to Nigel Neal actually in *Hound of Baskervilles*, in that in that it's kind of, yeah. you know, the great detective with the supreme intellect yeah. comes to face to face with this ancient primal force. You don't know it, it for the majority of the story that it's a, an actual dog. Oh, spoiler! Um, that's right. um, you know, so uh, all those actually little touches that make you think this is an ancient force, like the prehistoric dwellings, the, the yes. you know, uh, things that are embedded in the story that make you think that, you know, that we humans are kind of, with our so-called civilization, are skirting along the top, yeah. uh, the, well, meniscus, the meniscus of this, of this darkness yeah. that's underneath, of stuff we don't understand. Yeah. And of course, I think the challenge for Holmes is to render that as something that is something we can deal with, and uh, he becomes the hero of uh, deposing legend, myth, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, demonic forces, uh, did that light just go up? <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, you know, he, he's the hero of that tale for that reason, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I described quite a nice, I dare say other people have as well, as a space age Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically in Quatermass in the Pit, when he's dealing with ancient evil. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think there's a similarity to that, really, is, is that um, the things that we think we, in our, in our kind of hubris, put conveniently into, little, into books and say those were believed by more primitive people than us, thank you very much. What if, what if we're actually no exactly. more sophisticated but than those primitive people? May, what if they know what we didn't? We, we don't, kind of thing. I, you yeah. know, I think there's some interesting crossover yeah. of ideas there. Um, yeah. Just in, on, on, in craft terms, um, Conan Doyle wrote apparently decisively and with few revisions. Wouldn't that be good? Uh, <laughs> that would be excellent. But anyway, yeah. apparently he did. If you look at his manuscripts, they. Yeah. They seem as if they've come off. You know. He just crossed out Newton Abbott, in fact, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Several times, and put in Cooper Trace. It yeah, didn't amount yeah. to much more than that. But he must have had incredible kind of stream of consciousness in terms of concentration and absorbing all that information that he was researching. I don't know if there's evidence about the notes he was taking or anything, or whether he just... I get the impression that he absolutely... The atmosphere of Dartmoor seeped into him, and yeah. he couldn't wait to, to, to kind of use it and get it down on paper, and, and it's almost like... 
the places became really vivid to him uh, yeah. uh, pictorially. But um, I think I mean he did translate Dartmoor into a Dartmoor of the mind. Didn't yeah. he? It's a kind of fantasy Dartmoor. Yeah. I was just reading on the train today coming up. I was reading John Fowles talking about the Hand of the Baskervilles and saying that in just after the war he was billeted on Dartmoor. And um, no hands. And <laughs> he said there there are bogs there that you might drown in if you took a terribly long leap from the edge. <laughs> but otherwise they were just an irritation rather than. Uh, potentially well, they, fatal. Not, so not and, uh, <laughs> No, so he was pointing out that, you know, just the romance of the place was yeah. much magnified by Conan Doyle into, mm. you know, into, into a gothic space, which is yeah. why yeah, we're yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, that, that kind of obsessive way that he wrote, though, I think it, it almost gave, it gave rise to a whole industry of people spotting his mistakes in his many stories because yeah. they came out almost in a fire of imagination. And even though he had incredible grasp of the, of the plots and that kind of thing, inevitably there were mistakes that yeah. Sherlockians and Holmesians... Yeah. Well, it's given Sherlockians <laughs> massive <laughs> sort of Scottish yeah. industry yeah, exactly. to I mean, he, iron out the inconsistency. And Watson must have been married twice because the dates didn't work and you know this kind of thing. So, um, But I do, I, I do think, again, Christopher Frayling put hit the nail on the head when he said Holmes and Watson are protecting civilization against wildness out of control and also they had the manly virtues of saving women you know I think there was a kind of gentlemanly side of, yes. of uh, it's very turn of the century yeah so it's very much to do with um, which is not not to be derided which is that he uh, uh, I think Conan Doyle had a sense of, of um, uh, Gentle, gentlemanliness, if that's a word, and uh, in terms of the values of his yeah. society that he, that he lived in, and there were certain things that were uh, expected of a man to do, and one was to be heroic in the way that, that uh, Holmes is a heroic yeah. in, this, yeah. in this story, really. Yeah. Um, but, so we move on to the films, and you, you talk a bit about yes. the first sure. version. Sure. Um, well, uh, Sherlock Holmes was very popular in films, from the word go, really, particularly in Denmark and Germany and places like that. A guy called Alvin Neuss was a very popular Danish Sherlock Holmes and, in fact, uh, was brought over to Germany to play in a whole series of films which had an umbrella title of Der Hund von Baskerville. There were six of these between 1940 and 1920, and uh, they were really hatched by um, an early... German film pioneer called Richard Oswald, who had already written in 1907 um, a stage adaptation of The Hand of the Baskervilles. And um, in order to sort of spiel it out into this extraordinary serial type experience over six years, um, Doyle's story was embroidered rather considerably with bombs in post boxes and uh, Sherlock Holmes impersonating Stapleton and and then Stapleton returning the compliment by impersonating Sherlock Holmes, all sorts of uh, permutations, but it was enormously popular. And in fact, in 1929, Richard Oswald then made um, a feature-length adaptation of the book, which was much more faithful. But it continued to be immensely popular in Germany. In 1937, there was another version, rather more fanciful version, again called Der Hund von Baskerville. And that film, if it, if it, if it survives at all in film fans' memories, it's because of its notoriety as having been one of the films found in Hitler's bunker when he killed himself because it was one of his favourites. 
apparently. So there it is. But in the meantime, um, Sir Oswald Stoll, theatrical entrepreneur in the UK, got his fingers burnt terribly when he moved into making films. Nevertheless, he made a very popular Fu Manchu series in the 20s and a very popular Sherlock Holmes series, all of which were made in Cricklewood. Uh, and this links back, if anybody was here to look at Nicholas Vince last night, to the Cricklewood production village, which uh, one of the big barn-like <laughs> structures there was Sir Oswald Stoll's studio. So Hellraiser was effectively made in the same studio as these uh, films in the 20s. And one of them was The Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, in 1931, Michael Balkan made another version of The Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, in which... Um, Sir Henry Baskerville was top build. Um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson were somewhat peripheral figures. But the one we all remember, of course, is when Hollywood got hold of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and um, there's an interesting connection to horror here. I feel The Hound of the Baskervilles is one of the great class classic gothic stories, very much edging into horror. So I think it's appropriate that when Hollywood came back to horror after a few years when they'd been running scared of the British Board of Film Censors, actually, and horror films had stopped for a while, the um, Universal put a film called Son of Frankenstein into production, late in 1938, and in that they had um, the South African actor Basil Rathbone. They also had a marvellous actor from Croydon called Lionel Atwill, and uh, the two of them went straight from Son of Frankenstein into The Hound of the Baskervilles, and of course Rathbone was playing Sherlock Holmes, and uh, to many people still, he is the sort of classic Holmesian uh, figure. And yet again, in this film, he uh, is second build because Sir Henry Baskerville is top build and he was played by Richard Green, who at the time was 20, but looked 12. Um, and, um, but one, uh, I mean... He became uh, Robin Hood, didn't he? He did become Robin Hood, that's right. But um, Rathbone was teamed with Nigel Bruce, and uh, the jury is still out on Nigel Bruce, really, because Nigel Bruce was largely responsible for turning Watson temporarily into a comic figure. Uh, but nevertheless, they were a team that clicked beautifully. And in fact, before that, Watson hadn't really been looked upon as, as an essential character. There'd been plenty of Sherlock Holmes films in which Watson had not appeared. After Nigel Bruce, and this is one thing to say for him, the notion of a Sherlock Holmes film without Watson became just... Just an, uh, no Can go. I just inter interject that my theory about Nigel Bruce's characterization <laughs> is that, is that um, in the late 30s, people still remembered Arthur Conan Doyle in person. There were newsreel of him, um, yes. and he actually physically looked like Nigel Bruce. So I think yes, people, people yeah. um, and also, uh, you know, far older than, than the, uh, Watson is in the, in the stories. Yeah. And yet I think they associated this, this um, rotund... Uh, walrus moustached uh, genial kind of figure um, so much with Sherlock Holmes and Watson that I, that I think it was embedded in how people expected to, to see Watson at least that, that probably was the choice of the filmmaker yes. at that stage and they kind of stuck yeah. with it for a while yeah. it's, it's a, it's, it was 20th Century Fox who made this version of The Hand of the Baskervilles very grandiloquently they called it on screen and in all the publicity they called it Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles and um, it's a relatively faithful adaptation, but again, I think in deference to the fact that Conan Doyle had only recently died and people remembered him so well, they actually put in a seance sequence. They made Dr. Mortimer, well, they gave him a wife for a start, 
and uh, they said that she had very powerful mediumistic qualities. So there's this scene inserted into the film which actually serves no purpose whatsoever. It goes nowhere. It's all about trying to conjure up the spirit of Sir Charles, whose death begins the story. Uh, however, it's a very, very effective scene, and it's an obvious tip of the hat to Conan Doyle. And, and I, I guess what it does is it, it puts the legend in, uh, in the context of supernatural belief, which, yeah. is, which is, do we believe in such things? Yeah. So it, it kind of yeah. stirs that pot, so to speak, doesn't it? Plot-wise, it goes absolutely nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. However, it does have what we were discussing earlier, that kind of, uh, iconic is not quite the right word for it, the but the sound, one of the classic Gothic signifier sounds, yeah, the yeah. howling of a wolf or dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. And maybe that's part of it, you know. Maybe it, it's, it's uh, well, Mark was talking about the, co the collective consciousness, you know, but, but the howl... Is, is maybe embedded in, in our DNA yeah. as something to run away from or at least be, yeah. be wary of, you know. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. But, um, oh, so we're on Basil Rathbone. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, these, these things are entirely subjective. Um, is Basil Rathbone the best Sherlock Holmes? Um, I love Basil Rathbone, and I must say, I think his Sherlock Holmes is fantastic, but like an awful lot of performances... Bela Lugosi as Dracula, for example. I look at that performance and I think that's a great performance, but it's not Dracula. And in the same way with Rathbun, I don't think it's Sherlock Holmes, personally. You that's think it's more, someone said it's more Sexton Blake? It is a bit. There's something very, uh, watching that first film, he played Sherlock Holmes many times, of course. Watching that first one again, I was struck by how hearty he was. He's um, quite a big and healthy upper-class gentleman of the period and really quite hearty. And I, Not decadent, I, in a way. There, there was, there's certainly no decadence, uh, but there's also no otherworldliness. And I think the great Sherlock's, to me, are Peter Cushing, whom we're going to see later on, and uh, Jeremy Brett, who in many ways was an extension of Peter Cushing. And his Sherlock was great for a couple of series and for uh, um, unfortunate reasons went downhill rather, but they had a strange otherworldly quality. Nothing um, hearty about them at all. Mm -hmm. Talking of decadence, however, at the end of that Hollywood um, Hound of the Baskervilles, apparently 20th Century Fox's head, Daryl F. Sanak, insisted, because he felt that the denouement in which everything is explained might be a bit dull otherwise, he insisted that at the very end of the film, Rathbone should turn in the doorway and say, Watson, the needle. Um, and in the context of this film, I can't imagine that it would have had any other effect other than making audience members scratch their heads and think, what, what, what bloody needle? You know, because there's no reference to it anywhere elsewhere in the film, but Daryl F. Sanek insisted on it. Watson, the needle. And again, rather like that same old scene, it makes no bloody sense at all. <laughs> well, of course, Sherlockians know exactly what it means, but um, yeah. the general audience... Very odd. Very odd. I, I believe it was cut, actually, that line, in many presentations, but, um, but it's, you can still hear it. It's, so between no. there and the hammer, were there other versions between that, of Hound, between that and the hammer? I'm not sure there were any versions of uh, Hound. There were one or two more Sherlock's. Ronald Howard, Leslie Howard's son, played him on television in the 50s. But um, really, the story is taken up again by Hammer films. So they did uh, Quatermass? They did Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, yeah. and then what? I think next was Hound, wasn't it? That's right. Once so they made a, like well, once they made a sequel to the Curse of Frankenstein, 
the Revenge of Frankenstein, um, the Hound was next. So they were cast right. They were they were realizing there was something in horror, to an extent. Well, um, not. <laughs> they made a but, huge but impact. Why, but your yeah. your thing about you know it's an archi- it's a, it's an archetypal you know one of the four or five greats of yeah. horror. Um, seems to be borne out by the fact that they scanned around and it was kind of like the next one yeah. they was, thought to do. It was brought to them by a young American producer called Kenneth Hyman, actually, and they realised that, yes, this is a perfect subject for us, and it very much was, because that decadent late Victorian world, which they created in The Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula, was ideally suited, with only a few minor adjustments, to the world of... Conan Doyle, and one of the beauties of the Hammer version of the Hound of the Baskervilles is that it, it does inhabit that strange Hammer, Hammer-esque kind of milieu. And it's the is it the first one? It'd be the first one in colour, wouldn't it? It was the first one in colour, and uh, uh, quite a lot was made of that, in fact. And um, what was just remind us, me included, of what Hammer's reputation was in terms of uh, what people expected from a Hammer film. Uh, when this was being made, or around that time, well, was they it seen as being lurid, exploitational, or, or was it was all it those things? Yeah. Really? So it was it quite <laughs> looked down on. Was it? Well, I think. I mean, they the had pucker actors, decent actors, great actors. Yeah, 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 absolutely. They could call upon the, the cream of uh, the British acting profession. Yeah. But um, with, certainly within the industry, um, Hammer were considered. Um, that, well, they were making, uh, frankly. Uh, repulsive, exploitative films. And not only their horror films, a, a film about Japanese war crimes called The Camp on Blood Island had caused a huge kerfuffle. And in fact, I think, did much more to solidify the notion of Hammer as persona non grata than any of their Gothic films. But the, the, the Gothic films were very, very were received with, hyster- with hysterical um, disgust, particularly by British critics. But of course, people flocked to see them because they redefined... A genre, and in many ways, taking on Sherlock Holmes, they redefined that whole area too. They had the same personnel as had been involved in Frankenstein and Dracula. You know, preeminently the director Terence Fisher, um, who, who's you know, created these very methodically created this world in which he could punctuate things with um, shot cuts, dramatic close-ups. Uh, dynamic staging and um, and really uh, I think he was a su- superb director but of course the important point was he really headed up a team of amazing um, artists particularly the cinematographer Jack Asher this is a beautiful film you're going to see later on and the production designer Bernard Robinson who made these Fantastic films look yeah. amazingly expensive when in fact they cost very little and in this particular film adapted all sorts of bits and bobs of Castle Dracula to become <laughs> Baskerville Hall. And uh, they had, um, they gave Christopher Lee the opportunity to play the kind of romantic lead that he'd never been able to do in his previous ten years as an actor because people thought he was too tall and too foreign looking to play romantic leads but I think you'll see from this film that he was actually ideally suited to it, curiously enough. And Andre Morel, who was one of their regulars, who really restored dignity to uh, Watson, playing him quite straight. We were saying and earlier on how important uh, the casting of Watson is, for, because as, well, as you'll see, if you're not familiar with it, uh, yeah. Sherlock Holmes disappears for a big chunk of the story. He does. Uh, in terms of the book, he disappears for about a third of it, mm. the, sort of, the sort of middle third. 
Um, so yeah, particularly with this story, you've got to get your Watson right, and uh, they certainly did with Andre Morel. And he was, I think what's really crucial is that um, Andre Morel was a major in the Royal West Fusiliers, yeah. and I, th I think you kind of see that in his performance, because uh, Watson of course was an ex-military man, and uh, I think that, that's, you know, it's not overt, but there's just something about the way he, he's one of my, definitely one of my favourite Watsons. Um, <laughs> yeah. Peter Cushing at that stage was... He'd just been in The Abominable Snowman, which is the Nigel Neal, is that right? Uh, he'd done that, yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, great performance in that. Um, no, so, known to Hammer, uh, but previously known mostly for TV, is that right? Uh, yes, well, he was a big, he was a big uh, TV star, he was really the, the first... 1984? Yes, he was, he was the BBC's first big star um, as a television actor, but he'd already played Baron Frankenstein for Hammer, and uh, Dr. Van Helsing. And so when cast as Sherlock Holmes, Hammer, Hammer did, I mean, this is one of the great Gothic stories, The Hand of Baskervilles, but nevertheless, they did feel the need to tweak it here and there to bring it more firmly into their milieu. Uh, I'm sure you'll spot those moments. There's a tarantula involved. I don't think I'm giving too much away there. <laughs> and uh, also, in the original story, there's reference to the Notting Hill murderer. Well, of course, it's, it's only a line of dialogue, but it, it does its job, whereas here, um, Watson adds a little detail that he, he um, apparently killed a number of street women, which um, puts us firmly in Jack the Ripper country. And there are, there are several others. But um, with Cushing, the uh, screenwriter Peter Bryan felt compelled to actually muddy the waters about how rationalist Sherlock Holmes is. We were talking about that mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Because he actually puts into Sherlock Holmes's mouth a few phrases that are quite clearly straight out of the Van Helsing phrase book, you know, there, there's more evil here than I have ever encountered. Avoid the more when the powers of darkness are exalted. Stuff that uh, Colin Doyle's Holmes would never really have said. And yet, Peter Cushing was, I think, ideally cast. He actually was a Holmes aficionado since boyhood. He had a complete set of the Strand magazine with all the original stories in. And he, uh, I mean, probably here, but certainly when he portrayed Holmes on the BBC, he was fastidious about basing uh, his body language on, on the Sidney Padgett illustrations and yeah. such like and the way he dressed and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean he was quite a fastidious actor in terms of preparation anyway, wasn't he? But I find it interesting that he was absolutely, for that reason, really delighted to, to have the opportunity to do the part for Hammer, but rather disarmed when uh, James Carrera said he wanted a sexy Sherlock. <laughs> you know? So we think of the, the idea of a sexy Sherlock to be um, something in, the re in recent history, but actually it goes back to 1959, <laughs> which is quite interesting. Well, he's a sort of asexy Sherlock, because he's, he's got that sort of... Uh, 50s sexy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's actually a very Wildian figure in this film. He's waspish and rather difficult. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yes, you can imagine he'd be a very difficult person to, uh, to, to, to live. I'm smiling because I like that aspect of the character. Absolutely, but he was, he, was called, he was known as Props Peter, so when he's faced with his favourite character, Sherlock Holmes, he's determined to get it all right. He has to have the right mouse-coloured dressing gown in the opening scene. If I just watch the opening scene, uh, he, he, um, he writes a, a note to himself, a memo to himself on his shirt cuff, which of course wasn't scripted. He was very keen that he should jackknife his notes to the top of the mantelpiece, as in yes, the stories, the script, and then was horrified to find that Bernard Robinson had put a marble top on the fireplace. <laughs> so they put a bit of balsa wood on instead and covered that with some red plush. Just look for the red plush, because that's covering the <laughs> that's balsa brilliant. wood, which enabled Cushing to jackknife the notes to it. <laughs> Fantastic. And, uh, but I think, 
um, there was an, a critic for the, um, for the uh, News Chronicle called Paul Dane, who, curious enough, was the partner of Hammer's famous composer, James Bernard, so, uh, who also composed this film. So he was quite well disposed towards Hammer Horror, which a lot of British critics weren't. And uh, he said of, uh, Cushing's home, of Cushing's Homes, he said, um, his questing hawk's head so swivels in the throes of deduction that one could almost hear the brain brought to a fine fizz inside. Oh. <laughs> and interestingly, uh, Jeremy Brett, I do think Jeremy Brett's performance as, um, you know, a rather um, antisocial <laughs> Sherlock Holmes is very much an extension of Cushing's. Um, comparisons to Birds of Prey were made with Jeremy Brett too. So, you know, there's an interesting yeah. lineage there between these great Sherlock. So, shooting the hound. Shooting the hound. Oh, the hound itself. Yeah. Well, it's one the of the it's one of the interesting thing about the Hound of the Basketballs, isn't it? I don't know that, that. I hope I'm not spoiling it for you, but I don't know that anybody's quite got the hound itself right. Uh, and um, I think, uh, I, personally, I think in this film they they do they do pretty well, pretty but they good. did have difficulty. Yeah. They used a, l a little boy dressed as Christopher Lee, didn't they? Well, they <laughs> tried to make the, make the hound look bigger. But well, apparently work, they, so they, actually, they actually got some money out to, to, do, to do the scene again with little boys as Watson Holmes and, um, and Sir Henry Baskerville, but it looks so crap <laughs> they, that none of, it, none of it actually survives into the film. Um, as where, where Dartmoor is concerned, uh, of course, they didn't go far afield. They mainly um, shot Dartmoor in French and Ponds and Chobham Common in Surrey. But um, this film was shot from the 13th of September to the 31st of October, 1958. What a wonderful day to finish on. But in the first week of <laughs> December, they felt they needed some pickup shots on Dartmoor itself. And so Anthony Hines, the producer, who many people credit as the, the real architect of Hammer Horror. He got into his Bentley with a couple of camera assistants and uh, they drove down to Dartmoor in the first week of December and they did some pickup shots. So for instance, whenever you see uh, shots of the, uh, the light glimmering on the moors, which is a very totemic and important part <laughs> of the story, whenever you see bits like that, scenic moments like that, that is actually Dartmoor. The rest is all French and Ponds. <laughs> <laughs> And the, and, the, and the Great Dane was called Colonel, apparently. <laughs> the Great Dane was called Colonel, yeah, that's right. And, and I was going to say something about how it looks, but maybe that would be too much of a... A uh, little bit of a... Yeah, OK, well, that's not good. <laughs> um, but there are only three cuts asked for by the BBFC, apparently. One was that's about... Right. One was, rather intriguingly, Sir Hugo smelling some garments. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, I suppose, in a, I mean, you know, the, 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 the <laughs> Holmes is a hound-like character, isn't he? Uh, Holmes is a, 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 a hound on the scent. And yeah. there was one moment where Sir Hugo, in the opening uh, uh, sequence, is, uh, he's, he's, ch he's chasing the girl that's escaped from his stronghold, and he did actually, he does, yes, he does smell, smell he rips the garments and then smells them. The, the smelling bit was cut by the, by the censor. One... It was an A certificate, this film. Of course, Hammer were used to X certificates by now. But quite frankly, the opening ten minutes, which is the Sir Hugo section, is um, extraordinarily, um, I think it's extraordinarily transgressive in its way, even without the garment smelling. 
Um, and uh, I just think the opening ten minutes makes a nonsense of that, that A certificate. And they've got a fantastic actor called David Oxley playing Christopher Lee's ancestor. And um, it's really the quintessence of what Hammer did, which was uh, very often there was a very class-conscious uh, aspect to, to their horror films. The monsters are not, you know, the creatures created in the lab or what have you. They are always appalling aristocrats. And uh, Sir Hugo Baskerville is up there with Count Dracula, really. It's a bit like politics today. Um, <laughs> well, actually, watch the first ten minutes of this scene and think Bullingdon Club. <laughs> not Hellfire Club. Well, it is very Hellfire Club, but uh, Bullingdon so shall we, uh, um, I want to keep all those things about the Hammer uh, uh, film fresh in your mind, but should we talk a little bit about other versions of yeah. um, Holmes and the Hound that, that have come later? Well, uh, there was a Universal TV movie in 1972, which uh, had Stuart Granger as Sherlock Holmes. I'm, I'm very fond of Stuart Granger, but he, he was very good at being Stuart Granger. And I have to say, <laughs> when faced with playing Sherlock Holmes, he made no effort whatsoever <laughs> to do anything out of his... And, and this film is awful. And it's also... And William Shatner is another much derided actor. But I have to say, if you, if you want... Yeah, William Shatner as Stapleton is... Uh, collector's item it's, <laughs> it's, and, and it's really terrible, terrible generally but before that actually of course Cushing had had the opportunity to do The Hound of the Baskervilles again yeah, did, two in 1968 because he did um, 16 episodes of that series two of which were The Hound of the Baskervilles again that's a very interesting one, he actually plays him a little less antisocial and waspish in that he's, he, you know, he's, well, he's Nine years older, so and he's he's a little more um, relaxed and and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, mellow, a little, a little mellower, but still just as just as effective. I think. Uh, and Tom and, Baker, um, Tom Baker, yeah. The BBC did you know the BBC used to do all those Sunday tea time classic literary adaptations, or well, one of them was The Hand of the Baskervilles in 1982. Who was, um, who was Watson in that version? Do you remember? Uh, <laughs> my namesake, Terence Rigby. Oh, um, yes, of course. Yeah, but um, a rather ploddingly faithful version. And Tom Baker um, had just finished playing Doctor Who. And um, he's, again, it's one of those performances you think, that's a really great performance, but it isn't Holmes. It just isn't. Um, and then after that, actually, you're left to Jeremy Brett. But I believe in 1988... The Return of Sherlock Holmes had had huge, the second series of uh, short stories, had had huge cost overruns. So rather than make two new stories, they decided to make a feature length hound on the cheap somewhat. And um, it's astonishing how boring that version is. It's, um, I mean, you know, Jeremy Brett was on the crest of a wave at that time, and yet it's very, very, very dull. And I'm afraid part of the dullness is. Is Brett himself? He's, he, I think he'd already lost that one. Those first two series, culminating in a feature-length version of *The Sign of Four, he was fantastic, marvelous. It was all downhill after that, and that particular version of *Hound*, I think, started that. I don't know if that's a controversial view, but but it's mine. Um, but that's a very um, dull one. But before that, I forgot one, but one which I watched again only yesterday, um, just before the Jeremy Brett series kicked in. Uh, an American producer decided to make some British films over here, a guy called Cy Weintraub. He wanted to make a whole series of Sherlock Holmes features, and he was appalled when the Brett series was, was um, 
was announced. In fact, he took them to court and all the rest of it. He made the sign of four and he made the Hound of the Baskervilles, both with Ian Richardson as Sherlock Holmes, and both scripted by Charles Edward Pogue, who went on to write The Fly for David Cronenberg and Psycho 3. <laughs> Curious enough, his version of The Hound of the Baskervilles is, is brilliant. I don't, say that the fin- I don't say that the finished product is all that brilliant. It's, it's, it's good, but his actual adaptation is very clever. He makes some adjustments, uh, adding more red herrings, um, in, indeed, new characters that work, and one of them is played by Brian Blessed. <laughs> and, um, and it works amazingly well. So, and the Richard Roxburgh one that we were going. Well, that was Tiger Aspect, wasn't it? 2002, BBC. Um, I haven't watched it since, but I do remember agreeing with somebody who said that Richard Roxburgh, that was a great performance had he been cast as Inspector Lestrade. <laughs> but again, it wasn't Sherlock Holmes, and you have an anecdote. I do. <laughs> I didn't like that production for the simple reason that I was actually working with the script editor on something different. I think it was Shockers, Channel 4, Shockers. Because um, that's the only thing I, I worked with that particular script editor on. It must have been that. Um, and she said she was doing How to the Baskervilles. And I said, oh, have you seen the, uh, um, the big um, double volume uh, annotated Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> Show you have them <laughs> beside your bed. Um, oh, and she, uh, she says she said no. I haven't seen that. That would be useful for the production department. Um, and I said, well, why don't you borrow them? So she borrowed them, massive books, which she buckled under the weight of. Um, I only got one volume back, and the other volume, which is still missing, had in it a postcard from Peter Cushing replying to me a signed postcard from Peter Cushing, which I've lost forever, thanks to Tiger Aspect, and I'll never forgive them. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been a good idea to take the postcard out first? <laughs> yeah, you, it would. Did you, had you forgotten it well, was I didn't think I'd, I didn't think I'd lose the book. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't expect to lose no, books, do you? Okay. So, so you're not so happy with that version for that reason alone. Well, I thought that that hound was spectacularly terrible, though. The CGI. It was the first hound of ah, the first that hound was CGI, CGI, and it just looked like Scooby Doo. I mean, <laughs> really, really terrible. I mean, I even went up there for a meeting, and I saw the drawing on the wall. And I even thought, then, you thought. I, even then, seeing the drawing, I thought, if it's anything like that, you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> and it was. Yeah. I think you're better off using a dog. You're better off using a. If the bad dog is better than a, a failed attempt to create a dog. Well, of course. Anything. Well, um, Doyle specified that it should be covered in phosphorus, or some phosphorescent, which was scentless and therefore not interfering with its scent of Sir Henry's boot. Uh, but if you actually try to do that literally, well, for instance, the Ian Richardson version. Um, it, they've got some fantastic hound action. In fact, the hound attacks hound action. Hound action. <laughs> the, 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 the hound attacks Holmes rather than Sir Henry because Sir Henry's uh, been knocked, knocked out by falling against a rock or something. Uh, and so, yes, it's Ian Richardson or his stuntman, you know, doing battle with the, the hound. But to do the phosphorescent thing, the hound looks off. It's got a kind of. Um, sort of force field around it, and it looks awfully like those Ready Brick commercials. <laughs> of, uh, do you remember them? <laughs> when little boys went to school with that glow? Yeah. 
it's, it's, so the, the hound is difficult, shall we say. Mm. Yeah. And the, we should go on to the Mark Gatiss version. The Hounds of Baskerville. The Hounds of Baskerville, because yeah. um, rather perplexingly, that they decided in that that we're not going to do a hound. I remember reading, we're not going to do the hound. It's not going to be about a hound. You won't see the hound. And then there's a hound. <laughs> do you remember? Well, they, they came to their senses. Yes. There has but, to be a hound. Sure. But isn't it a kind of chemical warfare thing? It's a kind of hallucination induced by mind-altering drugs or something, and Baskerville oh. Hall becomes a Quatermass-like government <laughs> facility that creates this that's, stuff. That sounds right. Your memory's better than mine, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Is, uh, well, I have to say, yeah, I yeah. thought that was a very clever yeah, yeah, yeah. take have, on it. Have your hound and eat it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I am immensely grateful to Stephen and Jonathan for giving their permission for me to make their talk available to you. And do check back soon for another bonus episode of the Folklore Podcast to keep you going until Season 5. And don't forget you can access even more extra content by signing up to be a patron of the podcast on Patreon. Patreon supporters are the people who ensure that this podcast can keep operating, helping to cover costs and creating time to write and record visit patreon.com slash the folklore podcast for more details. Thanks for listening.